Weeks after the Russian military operation or invasion into Ukraine, the United States has united almost all of the major capitalist powers to impose draconian economic sanctions designed to evict Russia from the world economy. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we'll be talking with Ben Norton. Ben is a journalist and editor of the outlet Multipolarista. You can check out all of his work at bennorton.com. Ben, welcome back to The Socialist Program. It's a pleasure to be here. Longtime listener, first time guest. It's one of my favorite programs. So thanks for having me, Brian. Thank you. Well, I guess I forgot that this is your first time on The Socialist Program. <laughs> I know you've been a guest on Breakthrough News. You've been a guest on my former podcast. But welcome. Ben, we know you are carefully following the events in Ukraine. Also, as a journalist located in Latin America, you have a perspective that's not simply based on what people think in the United States or what the U.S. media is saying. I mean, you have a, a general view that's more universal than that. One of the things that I think is so important is that at this moment, there are demonstrations taking place in Europe and in the United States, especially in those two places, opposing the Russian war in Ukraine. Some of the people at the demonstrations are openly calling for NATO to function as an air force for Ukraine. In other words, they're calling for the United States-led military alliance, NATO, to go into action against Russia. So far, the United States has said no to that because, of course, that brings the world to the brink of thermonuclear war. There are other people, and this is a growing chorus in the United States, that is now insisting that the United States set up a no-fly zone. And I want, I want you to explain what that would mean. Then there are others from the left, more from the left, in Europe especially, but also in the United States. And there's different sectors, different camps, different trends within, this, uh, within these anti-war protests. Some of the organizations are saying, look, NATO is bad. We don't approve of NATO's expansionism, NATO's aggression. But this is a battle between two imperialisms. On one side, the United States and the NATO allies. And on the other side, Russian imperialism aligned perhaps with China. Russia and China constitute a second major imperialist bloc. And so the left should basically have a position of a plague on both your houses. The two imperialisms fighting it out for their own nefarious imperialist reasons. There are other trends and differences of opinion. Of course, you don't have to support the tactic of the Russians, in this case, the Russian Federation military intervention into Ukraine, to say that the real problem here was caused by NATO, was caused by the United States. 
that rather than listening to or saying yes to Russia's legitimate security concerns, the United States recklessly and decidedly and provocatively pushed this to the limit, knowing that a military operation by Russia might certainly be the outcome. That's our position. Our position is that the United States and NATO are responsible for this crisis, and we can walk back for the last few years and show exactly why that's true. But let's just talk about these different trends within protest. One, calling for NATO to intervene, the U.S. to impose a no-fly zone, or on the part of some sectors of the left. And there's really disparate elements who have the same position that, in fact, this is just a contest between two imperialist blocks, a view actually that we reject. But I want to get your thoughts. Yeah, well, Brian, I think you said it very well. Briefly, just to acknowledge the people supporting NATO, NATO is a not a defensive alliance. NATO has always been an offensive imperialist alliance. Let's not forget that when NATO was founded by the United States in 1949, it included the fascist dictatorship of Portugal as one of the founding members. It has no relation to democracy. Let's not forget that during Operation Gladio in the first Cold War, NATO repurposed many former Nazi collaborators and fascists as part of its so-called stay-behind network to wage war on socialism throughout Europe. So NATO has no relation to democracy. It has no relation to peace. Uh, as a few years ago, NATO created a highly produced film honoring the Baltic Nazi collaborators known as the Forest Brothers, honoring them as as anti-Russia heroes because they fought against the Soviet Union, not mentioning that they allied with Nazi Germany and the SS, and many of them actually, as part of the SS, had a personal loyalty oath to Adolf Hitler. So, I mean, you've done great coverage of NATO, Brian, the talk about NATO's expansion. We know that NATO repeatedly promised the former Soviet Union in 1990. We have numerous documents from Western governments that As U.S. Secretary of State James Baker said, NATO would not expand one inch east after German reunification in 1990. Not only did NATO break that promise once, not twice, it broke that promise 14 times, adding 14 new member states of NATO, 100% of which are to the east of Germany, two of which, the Baltic states of Estonia and Latvia, are directly on Russia's borders. And as recently as February, a few weeks before the Russian military intervention in Ukraine, Estonia was doing military exercises with British and French soldiers as part of NATO operations 100 kilometers from Russia's border. So you've done great coverage of that. We don't need to talk, you know, relitigate the history of NATO encirclement of Russia and all of that. And of course, the idea of a no-fly zone. I mean, a no-fly zone is, is a brilliant act of marketing but it actually is a war zone. What they should call it is a war zone. What it means is NATO shooting down Russian planes over Ukraine, which means NATO getting into a hot war with Russia, which could mean World War III with nuclear armed powers. And I wanna remind people, where did we hear recently the discussion of a no-fly zone in, in mainstream US politics? It was over Syria and the presidential debates, and Hillary Clinton was calling for a no-fly zone over Syria, which again would have resulted in Western militaries shooting down Russian planes over Syria, i.e. a hot war with Russia. So, I mean, the fact that according to a Reuters poll, a majority of Americans now support the creation of a no-fly zone is an incredible testament to the power of propaganda and the media. And that Reuters article that revealed that just mentioned in passing briefly that it wasn't clear if the people who said they supported a no-fly zone 
understood what that actually meant, understood that it could mean war with Russia. So the people of the United States are being misled by the media in this hysterical war drive. But I think that we should spend this time, Brian, talking about perspectives on the left, because, you know, now that we have all that out of the way, I think it's helpful to have a scientific analysis here of what imperialism is, because the word is thrown around a lot. And not only by people on the left, it's thrown around increasingly by liberals, by conservatives, by people in the U.S. foreign policy establishment. They love to use imperialism to refer to all of Washington's adversaries. They conveniently never use it to refer to themselves. But I think we actually need to have a scientific Marxist socialist understanding of what imperialism is. And very briefly, I mean, I just have like a quick outline because I'm working on an article about this, about why we should understand that the Russian invasion of Ukraine, while it certainly can be criticized on a tactical level, it is not an example of an inter-imperialist war. 2022 is not 1914. Russia is at best a semi-peripheral power in the global economy. Russia is not an imperialist power. In terms of its GDP, the Russian economy is the 11th largest economy in the world after Italy, after South Korea. No one would call South Korea an imperialist power. And the reality is that the Russian economy, according to you know even classical kind of definitions of imperialism, the Russian economy, the majority of its GDP comes from the export of raw materials, not from the export of capital. And again, we can criticize the Russian tactical decision here. And, and the reality is that it's true that by invading Ukraine, Russia has unfortunately given Western imperialism led by the US and NATO and the European Union all of the ammunition that it wanted to wage the new Cold War as Condoleezza Rice, the war criminal and architect of the Iraq War in the Bush administration, as she said in a Fox News interview recently, ludicrously in this just incredibly ironic interview, she criticized Russia and accused it of war crimes for invading Ukraine. Well, but she also said she thanked Putin for helping NATO unify more than she's ever seen it before. So we can criticize this tactical decision, but I think we need to understand a few points here. One, that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is nothing in any way comparable politically to the US invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan or the war on Libya and Syria or the ongoing war on Yemen where 377,000 Yemenis have died according to the United Nations. And on a weekly basis, Saudi Arabia continues to bomb civilian areas in Yemen with weapons provided by the United States. So the reality is that we can talk about those facile comparisons that I think are absurd. I mean, Ukraine and Russia, as you've talked about in your shows, have a very unique history together. And of course, this isn't talking about the US-backed coup in Ukraine that overthrew the elected government and installed basically a puppet regime in Kiev. This isn't talking about NATO encirclement. And the fact that you know Ukraine is Russia's neighbor, whereas Iraq is on the other side of the planet, Syria is on the other side of the planet. Then there's also the element I think we should talk about of Russia's foreign policy. And Russia, the reality is that we can criticize Russia's internal politics just as we can criticize Iran's internal politics. I'm not a fan of some of Putin's policies and some of the conservative rhetoric he's taken criticizing the Soviet Union, the anti-communist positions. But you can also say that for Iran. Iran's domestic policies are in some ways very conservative, but in terms of both Russia and Iran's foreign policy, they are friends of the global South. They have supported revolutionary and anti-imperialist and even socialist movements in the global South. Russia is a major ally of Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. 
Russia has also worked closely with Vietnam, with China. The DPRK at the United Nations voted in alliance with Russia and Zimbabwe, Angola, Eritrea. So then there's Russia's foreign policy. And then finally, I want to mention that there are differences in the Russian economic system. And we can talk about this, Brian, but just to lay out this blueprint here. The fact is that, you know, the Russian economy is a capitalist economy, but because of the reality of Russia being a weak state and the fact that Russia, you know, it's not like the United States, it's not an imperialist power. The existence of the Russian Federation as this contiguous entity is actually kind of precarious. You know, We've seen U.S. policymakers calling for carving up Russia and creating different federations of a Siberian Republic, a Far Eastern Republic, according to Brzezinski. The reality is that because of its security interests, even though Russia is a capitalist power, it doesn't actually have the liberty of having a neoliberal economy to the same degree as the U.S. economy, which is a neoliberal economy that is at the head of the imperialist system. So Russia actually, in many ways, has a resource nationalist economy, which we can talk about, not because Putin is secretly a socialist, he's certainly not, but because Russia, a huge percentage of its GDP comes from the revenue that it needs from oil exports, from gas exports. The vast majority of its exports are raw materials, including oil, coal, gas, wheat, other different minerals. So the reality is that all of these Western imperialist institutions, they want to get access to those Russian natural resources. They want to privatize the major Russian state companies like Gazprom, the state-owned banks like Sberbank. And then finally, the last point I'll say here before pivoting back to you, just outlining my main points of this argument about why Russia is not imperialist, is also that the fact that Russia can be kicked out of the so-called international financial system shows that Russia is not imperialist because the so-called international financial system is the imperialist system led by the United States, but created after World War II in the Bretton Woods Conference with the World Bank, the IMF, the dollar as the de facto global reserve currency. And the fact that Russia can be kicked out of that club as a G20 member shows that the Russian economy is, is not actually that strong, that Russia is not an imperialist power, and that the imperialist bloc can actually, in many ways, isolate Russia and try to destroy its economy with the economic war that we're seeing now. Vladimir Lenin, the leader of the Bolshevik Party, conducted a famous polemic with Karl Kautsky, who was not only the theoretical leader of what was then the German Social Democratic Party, the leading party of the Second International during World War I, but he was, in many ways, the leading theoretician for global socialism. And the difference between the two, between Lenin's argument, which is written in or comes out in a popular essay, a pamphlet called Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, and Kautsky's position, is that Lenin is making the argument that the socialists who capitulated and supported their own governments in World War I, even though they had pledged in the Basel Congress and the other socialist congresses prior to the war, that they wouldn't do any such thing. They said they're going to oppose the war. They're going to try to bring it to an end as quickly as possible. But if they can't, they would take advantage of it to carry out a policy of revolutionary defeatism, meaning that they would prefer the defeat of their own bourgeoisie because their main enemy was at home. Kautsky, you know, was the leader of sort of a centrist position in World War I, which essentially capitulated 
to the German government and most of the socialist parties did the same. Lenin did not. The Serbian Socialist Party did not. Eugene Debs did not. He was sentenced to 10 years at hard labor for making a speech against U.S. entry into the war. He was 66 years old at the time. So some socialists held out. They stayed true to their principles, but most capitulated in the face of the war hysteria. Kautsky was making the argument that imperialism is a policy pursued by different capitalist governments and that the communists should understand this policy is wrong, something that had to be fought against. But it wasn't, as Lenin was arguing, not a policy, but a new stage of capitalism. Lenin in his pamphlet says, imperialism is a new stage of capitalism. And he says, as a consequence, that if all of the capitalist countries in this global system, this new stage of capitalism, were connected to and following imperialist goals, it would be wrong to support any of them, even if they used you know, pretexts that seemed rational. Because at the bottom line, the bottom line for all of them is that they had predatory colonial type interests. They were trying to steal the markets and colonies or semi-colonies of other imperialists so that they could expand their market, expand their productive powers, expand their export of capital at the expense of other imperialists. And so the position of Lenin, the position of the what became the communist movement, who basically adopted the thesis that Lenin outlined in his 1916 book, was that imperialism was not a policy. It was, in fact, a system of the major capitalist powers. He said in his book, if it were necessary to give the briefest possible definition of imperialism, we should have to say that imperialism is the monopoly stage of capitalism. Such a definition would include what is most important for, on the one hand, finance capital is the bank capital of a very few monopolist banks merged with the capital of the monopolist associations of industrialists. And on the other hand, this is important, the division of the world of colonies, semi-colonies, and spheres of influence such that the entire world had been divided up by these handful of imperialists. Now, when you think about that definition, now there are many other definitions of imperialism. And so, you know, it's important to understand, Ben, why we're talking about definitions. I mean, all definitions are conditional and relative. I mean, there is no absolute definition that will exist for all time that could be sort of the, the lens through which we evaluate world politics. I mean, if I'm looking at the Encyclopedia, I think it's the Encyclopedia Britannica, it says, imperialism, a policy in which a strong nation seeks to dominate other countries politically, socially, and economically. Well, if that was the definition, you could clearly see that Russia is an imperialist power because it is, in fact, trying to dominate politically, socially, at least, Ukraine in order to deprive Ukraine or the Ukrainian government of the right to join the imperialist-led NATO alliance. But what Lenin's talking about is not simply bigger countries dominating smaller countries. He's putting this definition of imperialism as a stage of capitalism. And when we think about that, and I think this is what makes the argument by those on the left that these are two imperialist camps fighting each other spurious, meaning false, is that when you look at China's development or Russia's redevelopment after the catastrophic collapse following the capitalist counter-revolution that toppled the Soviet Union in 1991, 
Those countries are not part of the colonizers of the world. The profits of their bourgeoisie or their companies or their corporations or the rich, they don't come, in fact, from the same global system. And let's just talk about that, because if anything, you could say the Russian oligarchs got rich not because they were part of the camp of imperialists who dominated the entire world. They basically looted the public, that is, socialist property after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and some of them became very rich billionaires at the expense of the rest of the population. They have a dominant or at least a very strong and influential role within the Russian economy, but they're not global players the way Britain, France, Germany, the United States, Italy are. Again, let's go back to this idea that the point of a definition is not to have a universal definition for all time, but the socialist definition that was employed by Lenin, which some of the parties on the left who are now saying Russia and China are in fact just another alternative uh, contrasting imperialist camp. These organizations actually agree with Lenin's thesis, but I say are falsely applying it. Yeah, I think everyone in the world needs to study imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. That text by Lenin is absolutely foundational, not just as a work of Marxism, but as a work of political economy. I mean, everyone in the world needs to study that. We need to know it very well. But I also think we need to understand that it was written in a particular historical context. In 1916, it was actually written before the Bolshevik Revolution. And the situation today is very different. And I applaud PSL actually published an update, an attempt to try to do a new analysis for the 21st century. And I think there's a few other points to make that are also, I think, not necessarily included in that book, but other analyses from Marxist scholars. So there was a really brilliant book published in 2016 called A Theory of Imperialism by Utsa Patnaik and Prabhat Patnaik, who are Indian Marxist economists. They also try to update Lenin's analysis of imperialism for the 21st century. And one of the key points they make is an element that we kind of see reflected in world systems analysis or world systems theory, which is not necessarily Marxist. There are Marxists who consider themselves world systems theorists, but then, you know, the person most associated with world systems analysis is Emmanuel Wallerstein, who was influenced by Marxism, but was kind of a, you know, social Democrat, a kind of left progressive. But the point is that what unites their analysis is they look at flows of exports and imports. They look at the character of different economies, and then they divide the global economy into the core and to the periphery. And the imperial core, the imperialist bloc that make up the you know, financial monopolists that Lenin talked about, today would, of course, be the, the former colonial powers, the United States, the European Union, Britain, Australia. Also, Japan plays a complicated role here and to a lesser extent, South Korea, both of which are still militarily occupied by the United States. But Samir Amin, the Egyptian Marxist economist, also talked about the triad of the imperialist economies of the United States, Europe, and Japan being the triad. Although we should keep in mind that Japan's economy, ever since the US actually in the 1980s and the Reagan administration, basically kind of waged an economic war against Japan to prevent it from being a major economic power. So Japan's influence has declined. And then, of course, another major power economically that has risen since then, which complicates this analysis, is China. So anyway, the point is that in this kind of blunt simplification of world systems theory, if you go back and look at what world systems theorists were saying as recently as the first decade of 2000, some of them in their maps, they actually included Russia as part of the periphery. 
And this is getting to a point you made, Brian, which is key, to understand what happened after the pillage of the former Soviet Union. This was essentially a kind of semi-colonization of Russia by US capital. We saw massive privatization, shock therapy imposed on the former Soviet Union by the United States. And these economists, like people now who are at Harvard, Larry Summers and others, who were later at the World Bank, they imposed this shock therapy that according to the United Nations and the World Health Organization led to a decline in life expectancy of Russian men by six years that led to millions of excess deaths that led to millions of children suffering from not only poverty, but from malnutrition and hunger. So a massive humanitarian catastrophe unleashed. We saw that the Russian economy drastically declined and other parts of the former Soviet Union, namely Ukraine, have actually never gotten to the same level they were at economically when they were part of the Soviet Union. So we're talking about a period of semi-colonization of the Russian Federation. And what happened is that ironically, Vladimir Putin, who was the right-hand man of Boris Yeltsin, who was the basically alcoholic US puppet installed, you know, after Boris Yeltsin outlived his usefulness, he showed himself to be a corrupt and incompetent leader. The US, the imperialist bloc, basically chose Putin to be the leader of Russia with the understanding that he would be a competent statesman who would manage the affairs of Russian capitalism. And I think what happened is that Putin, who is an anti-communist, as we saw clearly in his very objectionable rhetoric about Ukraine in the speech he made when he announced the invasion. I mean, we can criticize his ideology, but we also need to understand that this analysis has to go deeper than just Putin as an individual. We have to understand Russia, the Russian Federation as a country, its national interests, its economic interests. And basically, if you ask most Russians what happened, the chaotic years of cowboy capitalism in the 1990s, in which everything was privatized for pennies in the dollar, in which not just Russian capitalist oligarchs, but also foreign capital bought up parts of Russia, we saw this process of basically the third worldization of Russia. And that's not like, you know, sometimes we see that third world used as like a racist term to refer to people of like who are dark skinned. But no, I mean, I'm, I'm saying if you go back to Mao's analysis of first world, second world, third world, Mao said that the socialist bloc was part of the second world. And what we actually saw is that after the destruction of the Soviet Union and the imposition of neoliberal shock therapy, we actually saw the Russian Federation in the 90s and the early 2000s kind of became part of the periphery, part of the third world. And we saw world systems theorists say that Russia was part of the periphery. And you can look at capital flows, Russia exporting its raw materials with very little capital being exported and instead capital being imported, foreign capital being imported to Russia. Also another key element of imperialism, which goes back to Rosa Luxemburg's analysis of imperialism, which was not necessarily the same as Lenin's analysis, but one of the elements that she made, one of the key elements of imperialism is control of markets. And this is something that Utsa Patnaik and Prabhat Patnaik agree with in their analysis of imperialism, that the imperialist core, the imperial powers, they export capital and consumer goods to the periphery or semi-periphery. And in return, the periphery and semi-periphery countries, they export raw materials to the imperialist core. Or assembled products in the case of made in China, Shirts. where a great deal of the exported capital, I mean, Ford was exporting factories, not cars to China, and the Chinese were doing final assembly and then sending cars 
outside of China and, of course, inside of China as well. But it really was basically the assembly stage. So it's the harvesting of raw materials, extraction, and also final stages, meaning the lower stages of the productive process. Yeah, absolutely. And if we look at Russia's economy, I think the analysis that is correct, and this is, we've seen some Marxist analysis argue this, some world systems analysts argue this, that it's a semi-peripheral country. And what is a semi-periphery? Well, it's not part of the imperial core. It might have some export of capital. It does have some large industry. In the case of Russia, it does have a significant weapons industry. Although we should look at who are the main purchasers of Russian military equipment. It's formerly colonized countries in the global south. The main purchasers of Russian military equipment are China, India, Vietnam, Egypt. These are formerly colonized countries. And then if we also look at what makes the Russian economy semi-peripheral in the peripheral sense, the majority of the GDP, or the rather the plurality of the GDP of the Russian economy comes from the export of raw materials. Specifically, I'm going to read here the list of the top exports of Russia, according to the World Bank and the United Nations. These are the top exports of Russia still today. This is, this is actually according to 2020, but oil, coal, gas, wheat, iron, gold, platinum, aluminum, wood, copper, and diamonds. As of 2019, Russia was the world's largest exporter of wheat, semi-finished iron, coal tar oil, raw nickel, and nitrogenous fertilizers. So most of these are raw materials. It is true that Russia is the largest exporter of fertilizers, and it does export some of that to the global south, countries like Brazil. But if you look at World Bank data from World Bank, which is at the heart of the imperialist system, 39% of the product share of Russia's exports. So nearly 40% of the amount of value of Russia's exports in US dollars is from raw materials. And another 21% is from intermediate goods. And the World Bank divides those up, but intermediate goods could include things like semi-finished metals. It could include things like woods, so basically, those are also kind of raw materials. So around 60% of the product share of Russia's exports, that is the overall value of Russia's exports, come from raw materials or semi-finished materials. And less than 5% of Russia's exports come from capital goods. Now, if you compare that to other semi-peripheral countries like Brazil and India, Brazil, 13%, of Brazil's product share of exports are capital goods. And 17% of India's product share of exports are capital goods. So that's to say that Brazil and India export more capital by two or three times than Russia does. So, I mean, that's why Russia, it's not a coincidence that Russia, which according to, which is not a great measure of GDP, actually purchasing power parity, PPP is usually a better measurement. But according to the World Bank measurement of GDP, Russia has the 11th largest economy in the world after South Korea and Italy. So the reality is that if you look at the Russian economy, it's actually much more in the semi-peripheral block with the BRICS powers. And it's not a coincidence that, what is BRICS? B-R-I-C-S. It's not a coincidence that Russia is part of this block. It stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. What that means is that it's a recognition it's a clear example of the fact that Russia is not an imperialist power. Its economy, it's not the same as some third world global south economies, but it's up at the level with Brazil and India as a semi-peripheral country. 
Yeah, and of course, Russia would have liked to join the imperialist club. I mean, for a little while, they were they were let in to the G7. The G7 became a, the G8 until the events of 2013 and 14, and then Russia was just ignominiously tossed out, and they were no longer part of the G7. I guess they were just guests at the imperialist table. <laughs> and then you can also, when you think about the historical evolution of these countries— and the historical evolution of Russia in particular, its economy is devastated, as you said, by the capitalist counter-revolution and the pillaging and looting of the economy by the, the Russian oligarchs and their, and their then backers in the West. And the life expectancy, as you mentioned, it dropped six years for Russian men in six years, unprecedented in peacetime. I mean, really like a catastrophic impact on the economy. It's like a war. It's basically like what would happen if it's Russia had six years of war. Exactly, exactly. So then Putin comes in, he gets the country back on its feet, but on a capitalist basis, and he's trying to appease Western imperialism. I mean, he said he wasn't for the Iraq war, but he didn't do anything about it. A George W. Bush who launched the Iraq war said he looked into Putin's eyes and he could see his soul and he was a good man. Then you had Barack Obama send Hillary Clinton at the beginning of, of the 2009 first term of Obama with that great big reset button with Lavrov. It was mistranslated, so Lavrov was confused for a moment, but it was supposed to say reset in Russian, meaning let's get things back on track. So there was a flirtation with the Putin administration, but things go south really because Russia, while it's not part of the imperialist camp, is a major power. It's the biggest landmass in the world. It still has a very large military, as you said. It's the second largest nuclear power. Putin comes in, disciplines the oligarchs. It's not the wild, wild west anymore. Russia starts to get back on its feet. And then it's quite clear that Russia is too big to really be a neo-colony. It might have felt that way under Boris Yeltsin and right after the fall of the Soviet Union, but Russia's never going to be a neo-colony really, because it's too big. And so you see the beginning of what we have talked about in this show, and you've talked about waves of NATO expansion to the east designed to put Russia in a container. When we talk about containment, it's putting Russia in a container from which it cannot get out. And so Russia accepts the wave of NATO expansion in 1999, then again in 2004. It's not happy about it. But then in 2008, Ben, at Bucharest, the United States insists that Georgia, on the western side of Russia, another important Soviet republic, and Ukraine will both be admitted into NATO. And at that point, Russia says, and Putin says, no. I mean, even if it was Yeltsin, Yeltsin would have said no, because you can't be the leader of Russia and accept that countries that are Republics that are formerly part of your country, the Soviet Union, are now going to be the staging ground for NATO missiles against you. So in August of 2008, just a few months after the Bucharest summit, Russian forces go into Georgia. That was when that whole crisis takes place with South Ossetia. And then Ukraine is basically neutral from 2008 until 2014 when the Maidan coup happens. And since then, as we know, Ukraine's neutrality has been eviscerated, ended by these various right-wing governments that have come into office. Some are more right-wing than others. 
But they all were basically the handmaiden for the United States in insisting that Ukraine come into NATO. So when you think about what Russia has finally done, which is to intervene and say, look, you wouldn't negotiate with us. We said these were red lines. You wouldn't talk to us. You wouldn't say yes. Instead, you just said no. And you sent billions of dollars more in weapons just in the last three months into Ukraine. We decided to take matters into our own hands and extinguish or try to extinguish this threat of having NATO missiles on our 1,200 long mile border with Ukraine. Now, when you think about that, Ben, and you think about what the United States or Britain or France have done with endless wars and interventions in Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia, it's so profoundly different than taking military action, which I'm not supporting, but I'm saying taking military action against a country that was formerly part of your country, which will now be the staging ground for your enemy's advanced nuclear missiles. When you just think about what the dynamic is of the use of military power, you can see these are profoundly different causes. That's absolutely right, Brian. And, you know, there's been this, what's funny is to see the weaponization of the term nuance in the past several years. I remember nuance was used to try to basically justify the imperialist war on Syria, on Libya. But I think you all at Breakthrough News have done an excellent job of actual nuance in your analysis of the conflict in Ukraine, because, you know, we do need to have a nuanced perspective. We don't just uncritically support Russia. I mean, not at all, because I think there's a lot to criticize about Russia's politics. And especially, I think this was a very misguided decision. And again, I mentioned earlier that what it has actually done is helped unify the Western imperialist bloc. You know, you mentioned the Bucharest summit in 2008. It's important to keep in mind that at the Eucharist, Bucharest summit in Romania, this NATO summit, it was the Secretary General and it was George Bush who were the ones that insisted on Ukraine and Georgia becoming NATO members. It was actually Germany and France that were against this move. And we saw up until February, right in, up until the Russian invasion, Germany and France were playing a more complex role. Now, they're still part of the Western imperialist bloc, but they were actually exercising a bit of caution and trying to push back against the US war drive and especially Emmanuel Macron, who has, he has an election coming up. So he also was recently elected head of the European Union. So, you know, he has his own personal motivations for trying to portray himself as a leader of Europe. But he was really taking initiative, talking with Putin on a weekly basis, trying to de-escalate tensions. And what the Russian invasion did is basically forced France and Germany under the US. It forcibly subordinated them to the US. They were trying to exercise a little bit of independence and we now see that NATO discipline is in lockstep. The European Union has imposed sanctions on Russian energy, and the European Union is very heavily dependent on Russian energy. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline is destroyed. This was all part of the US strategy, actually, ironically, was trying to prevent Europe from integrating economically with Russia and by extension with China, because Russia and China are such close allies at this point. So what this actually, in many ways, has done is hurt Russia in a lot of ways. So we can certainly criticize Russia's decision, but we also have to understand Russia's decision. And that is just because we are not necessarily supportive of it doesn't mean that it's the same as the US invasion of Iraq. These are completely different political situations, completely different. And furthermore, I think we should also understand that we should look to what actually existing socialist governments are doing because one of the main difference between now and 1916 when, when Lenin wrote imperialism, the highest age of capitalism, 
is there are existing socialist governments. And whereas we shouldn't necessarily look to the Kremlin for our you know, ideology, I think we should take, we don't necessarily obediently obey 100% of everything that is said, but we should definitely listen closely to what actually existing socialist governments are saying in Cuba, in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, in Bolivia, in Vietnam, in China, in the DPRK. All of those countries that I just named are siding with Russia against NATO. And we can look at the UN vote and not only all these socialist governments, I also didn't mention Laos, which has a socialist government, but even countries in the global South that had revolutionary processes against colonialism, Algeria, Angola, Zimbabwe, Eritrea, all of these governments as well are allying with Russia, or at the very least, they at the UN did not vote to condemn Russia over its intervention in Ukraine. So I think we need to understand that Russia plays a complex role as a semi-peripheral country. As you said, Putin, as an anti-communist, he would like Russia to be a major capitalist power, but the reality is because of imperialism, because Russia is not part of the imperialist system, because the Western bloc did not allow Russia to integrate into imperialism, that has forced Russia, ironically, to take a foreign policy that is in some ways similar to the Soviet Union policy, foreign policy. And whereas the Soviet foreign policy was motivated by ideology, by solidarity with existing socialist governments, the Russian Federation's foreign policy is simply motivated by national interest. And the reality is that Russia is a close friend of Venezuela, of Cuba, of Nicaragua. In fact, the week of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Russia sent a senior delegation to Venezuela, to Cuba, and to Nicaragua. And we see that, the, that Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro has said very clearly that, that they stand with Russia against NATO. The Cuban foreign ministry had a slightly more nuanced position, but they said very clearly that NATO is responsible for creating this conflict in Ukraine, not Russia. And we've also seen China, of course, which is the other elephant in the room here. China has, at first, China was taking a more cautious approach because China has a very non-interventionist foreign policy. And it is true that Russia did violate international law by invading Ukraine. But China has also played a more, in the past several days, after the 24th of February invasion, China has started playing a more active role defending Russia, especially as it sees the sanctions, criticizing the sanctions. And China has also said very clearly, Foreign Minister Wang Yi has said very clearly that Russia is our most important strategic partner. We have a, quote, rock-solid friendship, he said, with Russia. And he also said that third parties are not going to be able to sabotage our relationship with Russia. So I think we need to understand that what we're seeing here is that Russia did violate international law, although we can argue about whether or not the Ukrainian government is actually a sovereign government. So while I'm certainly not pro-war, I, I think war is bad for working people everywhere. It's bad for the Ukrainian people. It's bad for the Russian people. We also could have an, an argument about whether or not the government in Kiev is actually a sovereign government. I would say it's not sovereign, given that the president Zelensky was elected on a landslide platform of peace with Russia. He got 73% of the vote against the right-wing nationalist Poroshenko. And Zelensky, during his campaign, he spoke Russian. He wanted peace. He wanted the civil war that began after the 2014 US-backed coup to end. And what happened? Zelensky was elected and he wasn't able to implement any of those policies. He did a 180. He shut down pro-Russian media outlets. He imprisoned pro-Russian Ukrainian politicians. And it shows that the Ukrainian government is not a sovereign government. But anyway, the point is that, that if we look at these other governments that are part of the 
the group of friends in defense of the UN Charter, along with Russia, countries like China, Venezuela, Vietnam, Nicaragua, Cuba, Eritrea, we see that they're taking a position that is, if it's not explicitly defending Russia, at the very least, they're saying NATO is the culprit in this conflict. For those countries, I think that they don't want to abandon Russia, but they're not necessarily happy about the invasion because, of course, Ukraine is sovereign. I mean, yes, their sovereignty has you know, been tortured and compromised because, like many semi-colonial or neo-colonial countries, sovereignty is in some ways a mask or a shield for the real relationship, which is that they are, in fact, proxies and puppets for imperialism. But certainly from a legal and technical point of view, Ukraine is a member state of the United Nations. And so this is clearly a violation of their sovereignty. There's no reason not to acknowledge that. But I think the well, question and the Ukrainian for us, people deserve self-determination, specifically the Ukrainian people, which, I mean, Putin's comments, you've criticized this very well. Putin's comments basically implying that the Ukrainian nation is not a real nation. I think those are really problematic, reactionary comments that the left should oppose. And at the very least, we should all agree that the Ukrainian people deserve self-determination and whether or not, I mean, I think you made good points about international law, but at the very least, I think it is a valid criticism to say that the Russian Federation might not recognize the self-determination of the Ukrainian people, even if the government is a semi-colonial government that doesn't have much sovereignty. And as socialists and as Marxists, we understand that force is large, you know, historically a decisive arbiter of events. You know, we can see that in all things. I mean, sovereignty and law and legal status are one thing, but when when interests, when either class interests or national interests are profoundly imperiled, the issue of law takes second place to the issues of either someone's political agenda or in this case of Russia, I would say self-defense. I don't think Russia set out and certainly wasn't intending years ago to invade Ukraine. I think this is a consequence of the Russian government coming to the conclusion that the Ukrainian government and the U.S. and NATO were crossing the Rubicon, that when they put the, their foot down in December 2021, when Putin said, we have red lines, you have to negotiate with us, we really mean it, we're amassing 150,000 troops to show you, if you don't negotiate, we have another option. And instead of saying yes to the Russians, the Americans poured, as we now know from classified documents that have been released and published by the Washington Post in the last week, the U.S. sent more than a billion more dollars, more than a billion of weapons, 17,000 Javelin missiles. That would only be understood and interpreted by the Russians as a final decision by the U.S. that they were going to say no to Russia and make Ukraine a staging ground for these advanced weapons. And this is what I actually think was playing out in Putin's calculations. And I'll, I'll tell you what my theory has been and see We'll come back to the theme, but I, will, I want to tell you what I think actually happened. I think the United States was hoping for a military operation on the part of Russia. They expected that the way things were playing out and their own reckless and provocative actions in December, January, February, when they were sending all of these weapons and saying no to Russia's earnest and serious negotiations efforts, I think they thought that Putin would finally move and take over 
the eastern part of Ukraine, that they would invade, that they would take the two people's republics or perhaps the larger Donbass region. And then the U.S. would have a pretext to incorporate the rest of Ukraine into NATO and say, obviously, they need to be in NATO because look at Russia just annexed a part of their country. And then Russia would be in the same boat because then the U.S. would, in fact, have the larger part of Ukraine, the center in the west of Ukraine, to be able to put those same weapon systems that are so threatening to Russia. So what the Russian government's calculation was to move in not simply to the east and allow the U.S. to capture and take the rest of the country, but to take all of Ukraine. And you can see that in the military development where the Russia is moving up Crimea, moving on the southern part of the country to the west, all the way, I think, to the Polish border, establishing kettles or cauldrons with the hope that they will force the Ukrainian military to surrender. And then all of Ukraine will be exempt from ever being part of NATO. I think that's their calculation. I think the miscalculation was that Putin thought when they went in on February 24th that the Ukrainian government would basically collapse and run. But perhaps for different reasons, one of them may be that the Russian intervention was actually, at, the, at least in the beginning, it came in with a light touch. It wasn't shock and awe. It wasn't like the U.S. destroying Baghdad and Basra and Mosul in March 2003. Maybe that incentivized resistance. I don't know. But at this point, it looks like a long slog for the Russians who are determined now to take the whole country, or there still is the possibility of a negotiated settlement if the U.S., which I don't believe will happen, but if the U.S. came to the, to the position that they would come back and say, okay, we got it, you're serious, we're serious, we don't want World War III, and as a consequence, we'll make Ukraine neutral. That could potentially still happen. I doubt it very much. But again, Ben, when you think about the calculations on the part of the Russian government, whether they're good or bad, whatever they are, they're clearly defensive about how to protect Russia as a state and Russia as a country from an obvious effort to contain and surround and threaten the country forever with advanced missiles that will never come out once they're in. And that's really a different posture than the leading imperialist countries who, in fact, make up the G7. Absolutely. There, there are two points I want to make here. One about uh, Russia's national interests and self-defense. I mean, regardless of who's in power, whether or not it's Putin or even if there were a socialist in power, right? Like Russia, every country has national interests and Russia in this war is defending its national interests. And whether or not you know, think it was a good decision, I think it actually probably was a bad decision. You can't deny that. And then the other point that I think we need to understand is what makes a war, an imperialist war, because not all wars are imperialist, right? And some of the key elements of imperialist wars are imperialist wars are to privatize natural resources and pillage natural resources, privatize state-owned industries, impose neoliberal shock therapy, exploit labor in the country that was, that was attacked, and exploit the markets of countries that were attacked. And we, if we see what the U.S. did in countries like Iraq, where after invading the U.S. sent all these American Enterprise Institute interns into the green zone to talk about like ways to impose neoliberal shock therapy and these Chicago boy policies. And that's exactly what they did. And they privatized parts of the Iraqi economy that was not socialist, but it was 
resource nationalist. And I think I want to spend a few minutes here, Brian, picking your brain on this, because I think we should also analyze the character of the Russian economy. I would argue that the Russian economy, it's certainly not socialist. It is a capitalist economy, but it's also a resource nationalist economy. Again, out of not out of ideology. Putin is a capitalist. He's an anti-communist, but simply out of defense of its own sovereignty, because in the 1990s, in the cowboy capitalism, ultra neoliberal capitalism imposed on Russia of the mass privatizations, Putin had to impose some discipline on those oligarchs. He had to impose a little more state control, especially over key parts of the economy, the oil industry, the gas industry. Agriculture is one element that is still privatized and in the hands of these capitalist oligarchs. But if you look at a lot of the resources, it's actually some ways, in some ways similar to the Iraqi economy under Saddam Hussein or the Syrian economy under Bashar al-Assad in that the hydrocarbons, the main natural resources are under the control of the state and the state uses that money to fund its operations. And of course, it's not socialist because the difference is a socialist state would actually use those resources and the capital for the benefit of the working class. Socialism is the dictatorship of the working class, whereas capitalism is the dictatorship of the capitalist class. So a socialist state would use all of those resources to benefit poor and working people. In Russia, that money is not used to fund housing for poor people and great high quality socialized healthcare and schooling and all of those things. I mean, there are some social programs in Russia, but it's certainly not socialist. But the point I'm saying is that if you look at the point of an imperialist war, what the US and NATO did to Libya, privatizing the oil industry and what had been the most prosperous country in Africa with massive oil reserves in Libya. If you look at the policies that were imposed in those imperialist wars, it was those policies of pillage, of exploitation. And the reality is that, again, you can criticize the Russian government, but Russia is not invading Ukraine to privatize Ukrainian state industries. I don't think there are very many Ukrainian state industries that are publicly owned. It's not doing it to exploit Ukrainian natural resources. I mean, Ukraine has a lot of wheat, but Russia is the world's largest exporter of wheat. This is genuinely a war motivated by self-defense and national security. Now, you can criticize it on a tactical level for actually, in some ways, endangering Russian security. But the reality is that it's not motivated by the same logic of capital that imperialist wars are motivated by. And then finally, the other point I wanted to make in response to this, Brian, is the reality that regardless of, again, Putin's ideology, which he's an anti-communist, I disagree with him in certain things, but looking at the fact that he's the leader of Russia and Russia has national interests. And even if a socialist were in power of Russia, the reality is that the stability and the existence of the Russian Federation is actually not that secure. I would go out and say that, I mean, Russia is certainly in a much stronger position now than it was in the 1990s, but the possibility of the Russian Federation being balkanized, being broken up like former Yugoslavia is greater than in the single digits of percentage, I think. I don't think it's likely, but I think there actually is a very realistic possibility within our lifetimes that the Russian Federation could be broken up like Yugoslavia was. And this is not just my opinion. We know because Robert Gates, the former defense secretary, wrote in his memoir that Dick Cheney, the power behind the throne of the Bush administration as an architect of the Iraq war, vice president, Dick Cheney within the Bush administration and before within the Bush senior administration in the 1990s, he talked about the plan that he and other groups of these hardline 
ultra-imperialist conservatives in Washington, these so-called neoconservatives, they wanted to break up the Russian Federation and China, by the way. And we've seen that with this U.S. support for secessionist movements in Tibet and Hong Kong and Xinjiang. And also, as recently as 1997, Brzezinski, one of the main imperial planners, he wrote in Foreign Affairs, the publication of the Council on Foreign Relations, that Russia, the Russian Federation should be broken up into three republics. He said a, a European republic, a Siberian republic, and a Far Eastern republic. So the reality is that, I mean, that's actually not an unrealistic possibility, regardless of who is in power in the Kremlin. I mean, they genuinely are concerned about being broken up as a state as happened in Yugoslavia, in the United States, at least in the short or the middle midterm, there is no realistic concern of a foreign power breaking up the continental United States. I mean, so when the US hypocritically tries to say that a country violates its so-called national security interests, I mean, that's preposterous. Venezuela, Cuba, Syria, you know, Yemen, Iraq, these countries do not in any way challenge US national security. Whereas in a very real way, Ukraine does challenge Russia's national security. I agree with you. I, I think it's not a small possibility about the dismemberment of Russia. You mentioned Yugoslavia, but there was also the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics that was dismembered. Yeah, yeah and, exactly. And, you know, and if you had asked anybody in 1979, or let's say 1981, a decade before the Soviet Union was dismembered, Will the Soviet Union collapse? Will the second biggest economy and the second biggest military power in the world collapse? Will the socialist camp collapse? Will those countries become independent? Will Ukraine become independent and Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania and Georgia and Azerbaijan and Armenia and Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan and Uzbekistan? Will they all become independent republics and many of them aligned with the United States and NATO? You would say, no, that's not possible. Nobody thought that was possible. And Gates, the Secretary of Defense, who later, in his, as you said in the memoirs, he kind of claimed credit for the breakup of the Soviet Union, which is ridiculous. But you couldn't see it coming, but it was there. And imperialism always was harping at what, you know, when I was a kid, and even when I was like in the, my 20s, there was always like Captive Nations Week. I don't know if you're old enough to remember it, but <laughs> all over the country in the United States, there were rallies held for the captive nations. And that would be all non-Russian nations that were either in the Soviet Union or aligned with the Soviet Union with socialist governments. And the idea was they were really under the thumb of Russian Soviet imperialism, and we were going to free them. And the U.S. always worked night and day with Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, and all kinds of NED-type you know, entities, nonprofits, in order to foment and break up the Soviet Union. Gorbachev's policies and Yeltsin, that core of either incompetent socialists or saboteurs of socialism who made up a big section of the leading part of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in the 1980s, they're responsible mainly. The U.S. always wanted to break it up. But the point that I'm making is it's not unrealistic at all for the Russians to think there could be a further dismemberment of a country that constitutes the largest landmass in the world. Same with China. And you mentioned Tibet and Hong Kong and Xinjiang, but there's also Taiwan. Taiwan. So, yeah. so the, the dismemberment strategy is central to U.S. imperialist plans 
to target countries that are being targeted, not because they're rival imperialists who are challenging American hegemony and world finance and the SWIFT and the IMF, the World Bank, or the other main banking institutions. They threaten the United States because Russia or China are big enough as independent countries that they constitute like a threat to American hegemony. I just finished the book, E.H. Carr's book, Soviet-German Relations, 1919 to 1939. It's a very small, slender volume by British scholar E.H. Carr, but it's very, very important to understand how it was key in the mindset of the Soviet leadership. I'm going back to a point that you made now, not to allow the imperialists to unite against the Soviet Union. That was a key and cornerstone position of Soviet foreign policy. And so behind the scenes, secretly, the German imperialists, the German right wing, were actually trying to promote a policy of getting close to Soviet Russia in spite of their anti-communism because they needed a counterweight to Western domination. So there's all this maneuvering. And even in the recent weeks, we could see, as you mentioned, that Macron from France, Olaf Scholz, the new prime minister in Germany, having these frantic meetings with Putin. And they were against the U.S. plan to use NATO to put maximum pressure on Russia. Why were they doing that? It's not because they're good guy capitalists or good guy imperialists. They recognized that if the United States was able to actually exercise complete hegemony again in the world, including the breakup of Russia, for instance, it will actually make them sort of have a semi-colonial relationship with the United States themselves. They would prefer a world where they can trade with Iran, where they could trade with Russia, where they can trade with China, where they can be part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The U.S. is desperately trying to weaken and dismember Russia or China, not because they constitute a threat, but their sheer existence as strong, big, independent powers means that the American program of post-World War II of maintaining absolute hegemony over the other capitalist powers, that will start to unravel. So that's what constitutes the threat. So Russia's right, I think, to fear dismemberment because it is on the agenda for the United States. That's what they want. And they want the same thing with China. Ben, I want to go over real quick. I don't know if you have some of the numbers. I'm sure you do because you're writing and you're doing a lot of research. But when you see what the Western sanctions, the U.S.-led sanctions have done to Russia, it also is another sign that this idea of equivalence is actually nonsense between Russia and world imperialism. I mean, the U.S. and the West have frozen the assets of Russia's central bank meaning it can't access $630 billion of its own dollar reserves. Now, Which is an act of war, by the way. It's That's an, an act, act of war on Russia. Yeah, I mean, when you look at what's the, the fact that the full boycott of Russian oil and gas sales, that Russian banks are being removed from SWIFT, which is a Belgian financial cooperative that is a, basically a messenger for financial transactions, Fitch downgrades Russia's credit rating and says default is imminent, meaning default on its national sovereign debt is imminent as the sanctions take hold. I mean, none of this happens ever to the United States or to Britain or to France or to Italy or to Belgium or to Japan. The imperialist club does not have these kind of measures 
taken against it. In other words, when you think about imperialism, not as a, as a static definition, but as a understanding politics in a historical sense, Russia and China, and even if Russia wanted to be part of the imperialist club, they're not in it. And in fact, they're the targets of it for the reasons I mentioned. Well, Putin himself actually acknowledged this, Brian, in the speech that he made before invading Ukraine. And, you know, we've criticized that speech. There's elements of what was famously known as greater Russian chauvinism, which is a very real problem. I mean, there is an element of chauvinism. You see this in his denial, basically, that the Ukrainian people are a legitimate people. But he also made another point in that speech that I think is very important and valid. He said, look, I'm going to say something that I've never said before. He said, I had meetings with Bill Clinton and I said that we would like to join NATO and they wouldn't let us. And that was actually kind of known. He, he said in his speech that he had never talked about it, but it was pretty well known that, that Russia had tried to join NATO, that Putin had tried to integrate into the imperialist club and they wouldn't have him because they wouldn't have him on equal footing. They would only have exactly. him as a junior partner, like how they treat Canada, like how they even treat Europe. And Brian, this, this gets me to a point that I wanted to make. The economist Michael Hudson, I think, is one of the most brilliant thinkers today. You should have him on your show. A brilliant socialist, unorthodox economist. I guess they say heterodox, unorthodox, heterodox economist, but a genius. And he has this really brilliant book he wrote in the 70s called Super Imperialism, which you mentioned Karl Kautsky earlier. He takes Karl Kautsky's idea of super imperialism, which is actually a poorly translated version of German, which is more like ultra imperialism or hyper imperialism. But basically, Kautsky had this idea of this kind of like this imperialist block of imperialist powers, which, I mean, it was wrong at that time, but actually today there's interesting echoes of that. But anyway, the point is that Michael Hudson kind of took Kautsky's idea, but turned it completely on its head and created this idea of what he called U.S. super imperialism, looking at specifically from the perspective of an economist, from the perspective of someone who has a PhD, who is very well trained. Basically, very briefly, the summary of his thesis is that the U.S. government imposed a kind of neo-colonial economic order on all of these countries after World War II, not only through the Bretton Woods system with the IMF and the World Bank, but also countries like Korea and Japan and even Germany, which are still occupied technically by U.S. troops, tens of thousands of U.S. troops. These countries also have effectively paid for their own military occupation and effectively paid for the U.S. imperialist system by investing in treasury bonds from the U.S. government. Because basically the short of it is that very briefly, is that up until the Korean War, before that, the U.S. government did not have deficits in its trade payments, in its trade balance of payments when it did trade with other countries. But ever since the Korean War, the U.S. government has had more and more of a deficit in its international trade. And all of that deficit was military, spending on the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and all of these wars around the world. And then what happened is that the U.S. government would pay for these wars in Korea and Vietnam and its occupation in Japan and South Korea and Germany. It would pay in dollars. And then those governments, like in Germany, in Japan and South Korea, the central bank would take those dollars and then they would, they would use that money and they would invest in U.S. Treasury bonds, which are U.S. government IOUs. It's U.S. government debt. So basically, these governments that are taking dollars and buying Treasury bonds are paying, they're paying the U.S. government to militarily occupy them and to wage war on Korea, which was a war on socialism, as you pointed out, a global class war, to wage war on socialism in Vietnam. So basically, his argument, Michael Hudson's argument, is that this is the imperialist system, super imperialism created by the U.S., not the same concept as Karl Kautsky, but 
this new idea of super imperialism, what he calls the global free lunch, is how the U.S. created this system that forced countries, including in Europe, to basically pay for the U.S. empire. And we see this because in many countries in Europe don't even have significant militaries. The U.S. military became the global protector of capitalism. During the global class war of the first Cold War, the U.S. military and NATO were capitalism's army, right? They, around the world, they waged war on socialism to protect capitalism. And Michael Hudson, since then, since the end of the first Cold War, he has updated his analysis to make a distinction between financial capital and industrial capital. And his analysis of Russia is that Russia is a, an industrial capital power that is a capitalist power, but like Iran, no one would say Iran is a socialist government. It doesn't have a socialist economy, but Iran also has this kind of similar resource nationalist economy. And that part of this is not only about breaking up Russia, but it's also about forcing the Russian economy to liberalize, to let in Western capital, to privatize the major state-owned banks like Sberbank, to privatize the Gazprom, which is the largest company in Russia. So really briefly here, I have a list of the biggest companies in Russia. Of the 18 largest companies in Russia, 12 of them are state-owned. And this includes Gazprom, the largest company in all of Russia, which is the gas monopoly owned by the state. You also have Rosneft, Sparebank, the biggest bank, which is the state-owned bank, Russian Railways, Rostec, and basically large parts of the fossil fuel sector, transportations, and parts of the banking sector are controlled by the state. And according to the IMF, now I think this estimate actually is not accurate. The IMF estimated in 2012 that 71% of GDP in Russia comes from state-owned companies. Now that's they were obviously exaggerating that because the IMF was trying to pressure Russia to privatize more. They had a vested interest in exaggerating that number. But according to Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, you know, the Harvard Kennedy School is the elite bourgeois school for international bourgeois politicians. They estimate that 33 to 46% of Russia's GDP comes from state-owned companies. That's actually higher than in China, where around 30% of GDP comes from state-owned companies. So Michael Hudson's argument, which I think is fairly convincing, is that the war on Russia, the Western imperialist war on Russia, is not only a war against Russia as a country to break up Russia, but also it is a class war, like every war, and it's a war to privatize Russia's enormous natural resources, to privatize Russia's infrastructure to the extent that part of it is state-owned, and to privatize its banks to the extent that some of the banks are state-owned. So again, I'm not claiming that Russia is secretly socialist, but I'm also saying that not every capitalist economy is the same, and there have been a lot of intercapitalist wars for hundreds of years, and the reality is that the U.S. system of capitalism, or as Michael Hudson argues, neoliberalism is the age of U.S. monopoly capital. It's not a coincidence that neoliberalism emerged in the era when the Soviet Union was on the decline in the 1980s and then was eventually overthrown. This is a period of capitalist counter-revolution, and that's also the period of neoliberalism. So in his argument, neoliberalism is the stage of U.S. hegemony over international capitalism. And even though Russia is a capitalist economy, it actually still has this resource nationalist model that the U.S. has tried to stamp out around the world since the end of the first Cold War. Very, very important points, Ben Norton. 
I want to come back as we're ending up here, as we're closing, to where we started. The I think it's so wrong for parts of the left to draw an equivalence between Russia or Russia and China and then U.S. imperialism and the NATO countries and all of the financial institutions that actually dominate the world economy, which is the world capitalist or the world imperialist economy. They dominate that economy. They manage it. If they want to evict Russia, they can evict Russia. And this equivalence isn't simply, you know, wrongheaded. It really misdirects where the struggle should be placed. Yes, when you have Russian soldiers intervening, invading in Ukraine or Russian missiles and, of course, Ukrainian missiles, they're never talked about, even though the Ukrainian missiles are relentlessly shelling the Donbass right now. You would think that every missile in Ukraine is just a Russian missile. But, you know, there are a lot of Russian missiles. And so on its face, in a visceral way, imperialism is quite happy because it can say, look, it's the Russians who are the aggressors. Meanwhile, they who invaded Vietnam, invaded Korea, invaded Panama, arrested the Panamanian head of state and put him in prison for 30 years until he died, invaded Iraq, captured that head of state, had him executed. I mean, a lot like the old Roman Empire, but on a modern capitalist basis. All of these aggressions, the destruction of Yugoslavia, 28,000 bombs and missiles against the last remaining socialist government in Europe. That was in 1999. So now they can say, no, no, we're, we're good. We like peace. It's the Russians who are the bad guys. And that makes it convenient for them in terms of public relations. And also they have drawn Germany and France and the other European countries that actually would prefer to have good relations with Russia and don't really historically support all of this aggression against Russia they are now firmly in America's camp. So I believe that the Russian invasion into Ukraine is not making America that unhappy. In fact, I think American geostrategic planners are it. quite, yeah, they're quite content. They, they, they may have thought Russia would, that Russia would just take the East or try to take the whole thing, but they're happy. And they did want it because they could have prevented it and they chose not to. I think it's a very real possibility that this could be a situation like the famous Brzezinski trap, right? Not, not to, you know, and this isn't to say that we shouldn't criticize Russia, but in the sense that Brzezinski, the national security advisor of Jimmy Carter, the U.S. president, he famously declared that the attempt to lure the Soviet Union into Afghanistan was a trap. He called it a trap. And, you know, this isn't to excuse the Russian Federation and, and Putin for invading Ukraine, which I, I agree with you, I think is is actually going to help Western imperialism in many ways. But I actually think that in some ways it was an intentional trap that they knew. I mean, we have a 2008 WikiLeaks cable from the State Department yep. from current CIA director, William Burns, who was then US ambassador to Russia, in which he warned, and again, this is a classified State Department cable. He said to his bosses in the State Department, look, Ukraine joining NATO is a red line for Russia. It will force Russia to decide whether or not it will intervene. And I think that they made the decision they wanted Russia to intervene, and Russia fell for that trap. Yeah. Or they might have also thought of it as a trap, too, but that they had no options, that in order to defend against a war that was coming in five years, they would take action now, take territory now in order to strengthen their position. Either way, we don't know. We're not a fly on the wall there. But you can clearly see that the U.S. is happy about what's happening 
They've cemented the bloc discipline within NATO, German and French sort of independence or semi-autonomy from American decision-making has been basically vanquished. European public opinion, including progressive public opinion, is now against Russia, meaning objectively in the direction of NATO. You have communists in Europe who are basically, and this is where we started, making this equivalence like NATO is bad, but Russia is also bad. So we're going to condemn both, which actually, and this is where I wanted to end, and I'll give you the final word. I think this is this having a wrong worldview, having a wrong assessment for whatever reasons, having a wrong worldview is of critical importance. It's not enough to be activists going in the wrong direction. We have to be activists and organizers going in the right direction. And if you try to say that there's two blocks and both are evil, the imperialists in Russia and China and the imperialists in the West, you miseducate the working class and the young people who are the most important parts of any movement for social change or any movement to restrain imperialism. It's misguiding and misleading and miseducating the movement. And that's why I wanted to actually have this show, Ben Norton, because I want to bring out why the false equivalence, the symmetry as it's being presented by some parts of the left, is not only false, it's dangerous because it misleads the movement in terms of where we have to organize and who we are organizing against. Ben Norton, you get the last word. I couldn't agree more, Brian. You've said it very well. And I have to say that Liberation News has published some PSL statements that I think are brilliant analysis. And fundamentally, I mean, I think most of your audience are people in the United States and English speakers, of course. So a lot of people in maybe Britain, Western Europe. So I think fundamentally, especially as you know, people from that, that imperial core, our responsibility is opposing imperialism and especially NATO, NATO being one of the main instruments of imperialism. In terms of military force, the main instrument of imperialism, NATO will never be a progressive force. It doesn't matter if there's a social democratic government in Western Europe. NATO was founded as a, a coalition of right-wing anti-communist regimes, again, including the fascist regime in Portugal, the fascist dictatorship in Portugal. NATO has never been a progressive force. NATO has a history of supporting fascists, supporting Nazis. And again, the responsibility of people in the imperial core is to oppose the imperialist policies of their governments. And I understand why some people on the Russian left have taken the position they have. They're Russians, right? But we're not Russians. Although I think we should also more carefully study the positions of the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, which has been somewhat supportive of the policies toward Ukraine, recognizing the dangers it poses to the Russian Federation, recognizing the horrible violations of the rights of Russian-speaking Ukrainians in the Donbass, and also recognizing, I mean, we shouldn't understate the influence of Nazis within the security apparatus of Ukraine. Obviously, True. the vast majority of Ukrainians are not Nazis. In fact, 73% of Ukrainians voted for Zelensky when he promised peace with Russia. The majority of Ukrainians, at least until this invasion, they wanted peace with Russia, although that might have changed since, unfortunately. But the reality is that you know, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation has taken a, a position that is somewhat more favorable and not necessarily supporting the invasion. Yeah. But I mean, we should study what they're saying. But anyway, the point is that we're not Russians. We're citizens of the United States. We're people living in English speaking countries. And our responsibility is to organize against imperialism. And NATO, I think if there's one slogan that we can get behind, it's abolish NATO. It's NATO should not exist. 
NATO is not a defensive organization. NATO has always been an offensive organization. The people of Libya, the people of former Yugoslavia, the people of Afghanistan, they will tell you NATO was not defending their countries. All we need to do is look at what happened to the former Yugoslavia. In Bosnia and Herzegovina, still today, the European Union appoints an unelected bureaucrat who is always has been from the European Union as basically the de facto leader, the de facto chancellor of Bosnia. That, that country is basically a Western protectorate. They destroyed Yugoslavia and look what they did to Libya. It's 2022. In 2011, they destroyed Libya. There's still, after 11 years, there is not a central government in Libya. And not only that, this was the most prosperous country in Africa that NATO destroyed. Yep. They privatized its massive oil reserves, selling it off to British and French corporations. And then there were open air slave markets with sub-Saharan African refugees. For me, that is the real face of NATO. So first and foremost, for people who are living in Western imperialist core countries, you need to understand that NATO is not only the enemy of the world, it's also our enemy because people of the United States, of Western Europe, our tax dollars are not going to help fund, you know, healthcare and education, not only in the United States where there's no socialized medicine or education, but even in large parts of Western Europe, there's been lots of austerity imposed, privatizations. We see in Britain that the National Health Service is slowly, slowly being privatized bit by bit. So all of that money that could go toward providing social programs, housing programs, jobs, you know, good jobs for people, that money is instead going to wage imperialist war. So it hurts all of us. The only people who benefit are the capitalists in Washington and London and Brussels and on Silicon Valley and on Wall Street, first and foremost. Yeah, and we'll leave our audience with one fact. The U.S. spends $800 billion a year in the Department of Defense. The All the other NATO countries combined spend about $400 billion Dollars, in other words, half of what the U.S. spends. That's 1.3, 1.4 trillion dollars total. Russia spends 60 billion. Again, it says so much about who the real militarists in the world are. Ben Norton, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. And I just got to say, I love the socialist program and everything at Breakthrough. You all have been killing it, and especially when it comes to Ukraine, I think. In English, you all have had the best coverage with a variety of views, so keep up the awesome work. It's a pleasure being here. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.